Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey everybody, welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston, and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, let's get to it. Just a little bit of housekeeping stuff, as we usually do at the beginning of each episode. We had a nice response for this replay that we ran last week. Melanie Melanson. Man, this this case has always stuck with me. A freshman in high school goes to a party with older kids, never comes home. And one of the things that sticks with me about that case, so tragic, people know about it. Like There's at least four people who know what happened here. One of them, Gene Bertini was arrested after that as an adult in 2011, I believe, for armed robbery of a gas station up in the Lowell area. And it was a pretty vicious armed robbery. I think he used a knife and he threatened people with this knife and used violence against at least two people. And the police caught up to him. He's not the brightest bulb. And when they did, he wouldn't give his DNA. And the cops, you know, this kid is a suspect in a homicide, and people in that area know that. And they wanted to get his DNA, and the case went all the way to the Supreme Court. And they stated that he had been arrested for a felony, I believe, and the state is entitled to take his DNA. And if he resists, it can be taken by force. The thing is, I just don't know, you know, Melanie had never been recovered. But why was this guy fighting to have his DNA taken and examined? Why was he fighting so hard if he had nothing to do with Melanie Melanson's case? I think the cops know, most people know, and they're just waiting to recover her body. It's been so long now, I don't know what would come of it, but man, they're going to end up facing the ultimate judgment, I think. And this guy is doing holdups, you know, stick-ups with knives he doesn't have a long life expectancy. He should clear his conscience. And this Gene Bertini, I think he was like a junior or a senior, right? And was having a relationship on the side with Melanie, who was a freshman. I think she was 14. So, man, I don't know what happened there. There was two girlfriends involved, too. And they still haven't spoken to police. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine still being friends with those two girls, knowing that they refused to tell the police? about a murdered girl? How are you involved in a relationship? What if that's your sister, right? Tell the police what you know, right? Come clean. You can get a break. This is Massachusetts after all. All right, guys, I'm responding to a handful of emails I got. I had mentioned in the third episode of the Jerry and Julo case that I was constructing a Patreon and some gear available through an online store and all that. It's just taken a little bit more time. It's more time consuming than I thought. But 
I have some episodes ready for the Patreon account, and I'll let you know when that goes live. We're getting close now. And thanks to everybody who said they'd support the show going forward. One of my visions for the show is to become a little bit more contemporary, like more of what's happening in the news immediately, be able to comment on that. I'd like to be able to do some more in-depth interviews as well, guys. If you noticed, we've stopped doing a lot of interviews because I had been doing them by Zoom. And quite frankly, the sound quality is horrible. And you can utilize better platforms for communication, but they cost. And so hence, that's why I'm looking for some funding on those issues. And I've got to be able to take a little bit for myself to make this worthwhile. So that's what I'm trying to do with the Patreon right now. Well, we're speaking of the Patreon account. I'd like to bounce something off, people. Before you sign up, I'm thinking about taking the New England restriction. On Boston Confidential, we kind of restricted ourselves to the jurisdiction of New England, right? So I'm looking in the Patreon account to kind of go globally to cover American crime and international crime as well. Give me some feedback at barry at bostonconfidential.net and let me know your thoughts on that. All right, guys, grab your hats. We got to jump into the Wayback Machine, all the way back to 1995. I can't believe this case was this long ago, but it was. 27 years ago, this occurred, and this occurred in an entirely different Boston than you occupy today. It was a city caught in the crossfire of gang warfare. We were suffering through our own epidemic of crack cocaine and heroin was just coming on the scene. And in some neighborhoods of Boston, it was like the Wild West. So this instance occurred in 1995, but Boston had had a gang problem for at least a decade beforehand. And prior to this era, I guess you could say, the Boston police, for years and years, they were denying the fact that Boston had organized gangs. I've really never understood this strategy. And it was actually the police brass who denied the fact, and all the way up to the mayor's office, I guess. I just never understood this strategy because the press would go interview detectives off the record who'd say, yeah, we have several large organized gangs in the city of Boston. I don't know why they didn't want to admit that fact. And they weren't organized to the extent that the gangs in LA or New York were but they were rival factions that fight each other and they committed all kinds of crime in the street. And so by the time the Boston police acknowledged this fact and got a gang unit together, they were really behind the eight ball. And that really created a very violent 1990s. That was the crack epidemic. We were a little behind the rest of the country. It came to Boston and it was brutal. It was brutal in Boston. I think that the 1990s are probably the most deadly time in Boston history. And guys, the case we're talking about today is the assassination, really, of Assistant Attorney General Paul McLaughlin in West Roxbury in September 1995, specifically September 25th, 1995. And the date does matter, guys. Let me tell you a little bit about West Roxbury before we get on to the bio of Assistant Attorney General Paul McLaughlin. West Roxbury is 
one of Boston's most beautiful neighborhoods. I'd say it's almost suburban. At that time, it was largely an Irish-American enclave, much like South Boston, but West Roxbury was what they call two-toilet Irish in our household. They were a little bit above. It was a bit of a nicer neighborhood, like I said, almost suburban, but a pretty quick commute into the city. One of the other draws of living in West Roxbury, or Rosendale is right there too, is if you needed to get on Route 95 in either direction, it made commuting much easier than from other parts of the city. But West Roxbury is a beautiful area. And the McLaughlins were a staple in the neighborhood. Paul McLaughlin's father was a lieutenant governor in Massachusetts, and his mother was involved in local affairs in West Roxbury. And the McLaughlins had a typical Irish-American upbringing. And Paul McLaughlin was kind of a quiet kid, and he was reserved, but he was brilliant. He ended up going to the Ivy League, Dartmouth College, actually, and he studied religion at Dartmouth. And after Dartmouth, he went to Suffolk Law, where obviously he studied law, and he graduated and he started a job as an assistant district attorney in Middlesex County under that district attorney. And his name was Scott Harshbarger at the time. So this was in 1983, I believe, Paul McLaughlin starts in the district attorney's office. And he got friendly with the district attorney himself. And when the district attorney, Scott Harshbarger, was elected to be Massachusetts Attorney General, he took Paul McLaughlin and a couple other top prosecutors with him. And as I had just said in the opening, Boston was going through some serious gang warfare and people were demanding action. And this is what people don't remember about the late 80s, early 90s. The African-American community if you remember, one of our first episodes was the Tiffany Moore case. She got gunned down and shot off a mailbox during a summer, again, during gang crossfire. And from that time on until the mid-90s, there were elements of the African-American community crying out to have the National Guard patrol Mattapan and Dorchester. And this went on and on. It wasn't anybody else outside the community trying to get control of it, it was the people inside because these kids were vicious and they had the latest arsenal of weapons. They really couldn't be stopped. And they were at that time, Boston wouldn't even admit to the fact that they had a gang problem. So residents were like, we pay taxes here. Let's have some safety and security. And so they were calling for the National Guard. And that would ebb and flow as the decade went on. But man, it was, it was a tough time. So it was said later about Paul McLaughlin is he thought he can improve communities through being a prosecutor. And you can see that, right? Removing bad people from the community. It's definitely an altruistic mission. And that's how he saw it. And he was very quiet and reserved. But they say he had a brilliant legal mind, and he didn't mind working long hours. He was a single guy, 42, and he owned a small house in West Roxbury. I believe it was relatively close to the train station. And 
he was working on that on the weekends. He kind of enjoyed gardening, landscaping, and all that. So that was his refuge from the legal world in Boston. So in response to the public uproar about the crime wave ripping through Dorchester and Mattapan, the newly elected Attorney General Scott Harshbarger had brought Paul McLaughlin on from the DA's office. And it was a whole group of attorneys who went on to kind of lead the top echelon law enforcement prosecutor's office for about a decade afterwards. There was Scott Harshbarger himself, Paul McLaughlin, Ralph Martin, David Meyer, a really good core group of guys. And Ralph Martin would go on to be district attorney of Boston for quite some time. And people sort of predicted the same thing for Paul McLaughlin. He'd just rise to the top because he was that type of guy. He was very bright and dedicated. There were some who say he wouldn't have liked the top job because there's so much politics that go with it. Those offices are elected in Massachusetts, so you've got to run every four years for your seat back. But Paul McLaughlin may have just been one of the top guys, a career prosecutor, they call him. They stay with the office. But his father, the former lieutenant governor during this time frame, was saying, man, it's getting dangerous out there. Don't you want to go to a private firm and make some real money? And Paul McLaughlin said to his dad, dad, I still think I can make a difference here. And so that's where he was. He was the assistant attorney general under Scott Harshbarger. But as part of Harshbarger's campaign, he stated that he was more than willing to have state, the assistant attorney general, the attorney general, that's a state office, work directly with the district attorneys. And he formed kind of a task force. And he put Paul McLaughlin in charge of his end of it. And then the other various DAs, would appoint people to this task force, and their mission was specifically urban gangs. And they got right down to business, and they started really hurting these gangs, almost in the way like the New York FBI did to the Italian mafia. They were just hammering them at every turn. Not only would they hammer them for quality of life issues, right, but they would do these massive investigations that start with one guy selling one gram of cocaine or one rock on the street and work it all the way up to gang leadership. That's what Paul McLaughlin was doing in those days, and he was good at it. Gang members feared him, and the gang members I'm going to tell you about coming up especially feared him. One guy's name, the leader of this gang, was called at the time the Theodore Street Gang, and the leader of this Motley crew was one Jeffrey Bly, and he was a career criminal, and man, he was bad news, and his sidekick was a guy by the name of Ricardo Gittins, also a career criminal, and I'll tell you a little bit more about those guys right now. So Theodore Street is in the Mattapan section of Boston. It's a small street off of, I believe it is Morton Street. And it was during this time that this Theodore Street gang was rising up. And this is the, what, mid-90s, mid you know, 93, 95. They were a gang, a small gang in comparison to other gangs in the area. There was Intervale Street in that area. I believe in Franklin Field, there was the Franklin Field Giants. There was Castlegate. Those were the big gangs with the tons of members. 
and those gangs warred with each other. And from the research I've done, Theodore Street Gang kind of preyed on people that weren't affiliated with gangs, who had no real way to fight back. And they were pretty vicious. They did the typical things. They sold cocaine. They sold crack. They sold marijuana. And it was kind of an open-air drug market. I don't know what the deal was. I don't know what their interaction with the Boston police was besides this one Jeffrey Bly. Because you'd hear in the news all the time. I never heard there was a gang called the Theodore Street Gang when I was growing up. You'd hear, you know, Interville, Castlegate, and all that. And those were areas you literally wouldn't want to go in. You'd go out of your way to not go into Antivale Street. You just would in Codman Square sometimes. Things were bad. And by this time, Jeffrey Bly was the leader of this motley crew. And you can kind of understand a small street like that starting a gang because there's other gangs in the area and they probably screw with you. And so they banded together much like everybody else. They didn't seem to be as active in fighting each other, like Interville Castlegate. They'd shoot it out, I think, in at least whatever rivals of the month it was. You know, there's probably no rhyme or reason to it. But Jeffrey was the leader of this crew, and his sidekick was Ricardo Gittens. He was also a young career criminal, and he had been around homicide since high school, he was present when a kid by the name of Kingsley Fitzroy Allen was stabbed to death inside a high school in 1990, and Ricardo Gittens was there. And he was all over the place. The police knew all about him. They knew all about Jeffrey Bly. They were career criminals. They were hardcore. And so Jeffrey Bly had come up against Paul McLaughlin before. Again, these are lifetime players, right? And there had been two trials previously, one for drug trafficking and one for attempted murder. So Jeffrey Bly was indeed worried, right? He was looking at a life sentence for this carjacking because I think at the time they had stacked upon minimum mandatory sentences and the career criminal statute. So I think he was looking at a pretty lengthy prison sentence. He was ready to go to trial on something else, a carjacking involving a kid by the name of Dana Alston. Jeffrey Bly had carjacked him, and I believe he had stabbed him. It was very violent, and Dana Alston had the audacity to want to testify against the person who had nearly killed him. And it was learned through the police, the police had learned through informants and all that, that Jeffrey Bly was trying to kill Dana Alston. And it would come out later that this wouldn't be the only homicide that Jeffrey Bly was involved in, at least on the periphery and maybe as one of the major participants. This guy was a bad apple. And these are the people Paul McLaughlin was going after. And Paul McLaughlin was now going to have a third bite at the apple with this carjacking case. And it didn't look good. And it just didn't look good for the defense. And Jeffrey Bly was out on bail. But let me tell you what happens next. It is an earth-shattering event. It was something that happens in Colombia, something that happens in Brazil to their prosecutors, in Palermo, Italy. So they're prosecutors who go against organized crime. Let me tell you what happened. 
So it's September 25th, 1995, and Assistant Attorney General Paul McLaughlin is set to go home. He had worked a long day, and he was leaving about 6 p.m. out of the office in downtown Boston. Paul had an unwavering routine, and he walked from the courthouse to South Station to take Boston's commuter rail from downtown Boston at South Station. At least I believe it was South Station. Paul was a distinctive-looking guy. He had a thick mustache that bent around his mouth. It was reddish-brown, looked like an Irishman, and kind of hard to miss. So he goes on. It's getting chilly. It's September, and it's after a long day. And he was preparing for a trial that was set to begin the next day, September 26th, 1995. So... He gets to South Station, gets on the commuter rail, gets a seat, and they head on home to West Roxbury. And as McLaughlin is carrying his briefcase from the train to his car, another passenger who had just exited the same train about 30 yards away hears two gunshots in relatively rapid succession. Just prior to the gunshots, he heard some indecipherable words. And as he got up to McLaughlin's car, he could tell that this was a deadly head wound. He was shot at least once in the head. Nothing was taken. His briefcase was present. The police would later say his wallet with a fair amount of cash was in his back pocket. Nothing seemed to have been removed from the vehicle. Paul hadn't even gotten in the vehicle. He was like half in and half out when somebody in a black hooded sweatshirt and believed to be black jeans walked up to the driver's side of his vehicle as Paul was approaching. And as he was leaning in to get into the car, put his stuff into the car, he was quickly accosted. Nobody could decipher the words that were said or if it was one person to another or just one person speaking. Regardless, two shots are heard, and as the other train passenger gets to the scene, he could see that Paul had been removed from this earth, right? It was a very visible head wound. I believe the other bullet went into the floorboard, and the assailant had run through the parking lot towards the other side of the commuter rail station. This person was seen getting into a vehicle and the vehicle departing the area. Now, this was witnessed by several people, right? But they didn't all witness the same things. That guy heard the shouting and the shots, and I think that's about as close as you get to a live witness to the shooting itself. But people before and after the shots go off did see this guy. And one woman came forward and she'd seen him very well within 10 feet. But that wouldn't come out for later. So right away, Paul McLaughlin was identified because he's got a badge in his pocket because he's an assistant attorney general. So it gets out pretty quickly. Like by the next afternoon, it was front page news all over the country. Because this is something that doesn't happen in the United States, never mind Boston, right? This is something that happens in Palermo, Italy, you know? But right from Jump Street, you don't know what exactly happened here. And, you know, there had been no time for investigation. But, 
Here's a gang investigator investigating urban street gangs gunned down in a commuter lot. So the cops jump right to his recent cases. You know, he made a lot of enemies. He put a lot of people in jail who needed to be there. Just look at this guy, Bly, his record alone. Those are the people he was working with, you know. And the next day, it turns out, lo and behold, he's got a trial ready to start with Mr. Jeffrey Bly. I know I kind of led you to that. That was kind of a trap. I'd introduced Jeffrey Bly beforehand, but for time's sake, man, this guy is a walking crime wave, Jeffrey Bly and the, his sidekick, Giddens. So I believe the Boston police were the lead agency in here. Actually, I know they were, and they were assisted by the state police. But all of the attention, the media attention around this, make no mistake, every cop in the state had their radar up and every prosecutor was on fire. This was a direct attack on law and order. If this is how it went, right? If this is how the investigation turns out, if this was one of these gang members, killing a prosecutor in a parking lot, right? It's like Columbia. That's what exactly what was going on at the very same time in Columbia. All right, so I'm going to save you a little bit of time. Pretty soon, the finger points towards Mr. Jeffrey Bly because the very next day, Paul McLaughlin was going to start that trial to put him away for at least a decade in that carjacking case. So that's right where these guys start. And the file is still open on McLaughlin's desk because he was working till like 6 p.m. that night. And so this all happens just before 7. He gets off the train and catches those two bullets. Well, one bullet to him and one to the car. So that's how this was portrayed in the media, guys. A direct attack on law and order, on the government itself. And I don't know if we'd get that same reaction today as we did then. It seems we were a little bit more sane back then. But the attack on Paul McLaughlin was seen as almost as an act of terrorism. That's how it was investigated. They were given unlimited resources over time, whatever needed. And it was rumored that if the state investigation got stymied, the FBI was right there and willing to come in and had already offered to come in. They just have to be asked in by the Boston police. So the police and the subsequent prosecutors do an excellent job. The finger quickly points towards Jeffrey Bly, and he's arrested for this homicide. So let me just tell you what the state's case against Jeffrey Bly was. It was pretty solid, and they worked it pretty well. And there was DNA, and there was other evidence to corroborate the DNA. So let me tell you how this went from around the time of the day before the homicide through the homicide itself. So guys, on or about September 22nd, 1995, Jeffrey Bly was complaining to one Eric Hardy, who was also a member, a younger member of this Theodore Street gang, that he had to do something about his carjacking case. And at a certain point, like a light bulb goes off in Bly's head. This is what Eric Hardy would later testify to. He says, I got it. And then he went over and he talked directly to Ricardo Gittins. Later, on the 22nd, 
Jeffrey Bly would get with another gang member, a younger gang member who looked up to Bly as a father figure, and his name was Anthony Houston. And they took the train downtown to the area of State Street and Washington Street, which is a big transit hub, and it's near the courthouse. And they waited for Paul McLaughlin to come through because the courthouse was right nearby. And I had mentioned previously, guys, Paul McLaughlin, he's almost got like a, not a handlebar mustache, but a big mustache. You can't miss this guy. And he wouldn't be too bundled up. It's September. So he's very distinctive, and they see him. They see Paul McLaughlin in the afternoon, late afternoon, just after six or so. This was his routine. He was going to take the train home. And Houston is directed by Bly to follow this guy on the train. So Houston gets on the commuter rail with McLaughlin and the other passengers and gets off at the Highland Street station. And he follows McLaughlin towards his car. At a certain point, they actually have some type of conversation. And Anthony Houston is able to write down the registration of McLaughlin's vehicle. And he does that, and then he gets back on the inbound train and reports down to Jeffrey Bly as to what he had found. And what he had found was going to end up to be murder, right? And I know they needed this guy to testify, but he was part and parcel of this plot as well. And there'll be another person who should have been charged as well, but I'll get to that. So with this information, Bly puts his plan into motion, and he's going to take care of this himself. At a certain point, I believe he says to Anthony Houston or another second driver, I don't know if it was Houston or if it was this Eric Hardy who later testified, but there was a second driver and Ricardo Gittins and Jeffrey Bly drove together. So there was two cars and they arrived in the area of the parking lot of the Highland Commuter Rail Station in West Roxbury. And... Jeffrey Bly, once they get there, he dismisses the second car because I think he thought it was kind of like overkill, right? So the second car leaves and Gittins parks around the corner from the parking lot. And Jeffrey, it is said, this is what the police believe, this is their case. He sat in the bushes with a milk carton and he smoked several cigarettes and there's footprints in these bushes and it was obviously somebody was camped out there for a while. And after a certain amount of time, that's when people start to hear those shots. It is alleged that Jeffrey saw Paul McLaughlin get off the train because it's big, loud noise come. You know, when every train's coming, all the bells and whistles going off, he sees McLaughlin walking to his vehicle. And don't forget, Jeffrey Bly already had the registration plate. He pops out of the area of those bushes and walks up and just as McLaughlin is getting into the car kind of half in and half out Jeffrey says some nonsense to him and blasts him at least once in the head and one of the rounds goes into the floorboard and then Jeffrey runs off but in the process Jeffrey loses his gloves this kid is just the dumbest box of rocks ever I have to say that he loses like a scarf, gloves, a sweatshirt, a big bulky sweatshirt. It was all black. And he gets into that car that Gittins was driving and speeds from the area. And that's when the whole scene goes haywire. 
There's so much stupidity in this Jeffrey Bly. I can't believe he was on the outside for so very long. I think the only thing that kept him on the outside was he was audacious and he was vicious and people feared him. And he would rob you. He'd kill you without a second thought. And he did this and he went back and he started bragging to people. And he said it directly. Before he left on the 25th, there's a woman, he left from this woman's home, and she would testify later. Sandra Brown had heard Bly say, I've got to take care of this problem. And on this day, when he gets back in the evening, he says, I took care of that problem. I won't have to go to court tomorrow. So he thinks his carjacking case is over. But doesn't he realize, is he that dumb? Does he think they're just not going to get another prosecutor? You may get a three-month delay, but believe me, kid, you're first on the hit parade. They're looking at you first because your trial is the day after this guy's killed. It's just ludicrous. And he says it to Eric Hardy, and this guy ends up testifying against him. Anthony Houston, who helped him with this whole plot, right? They follow this guy, and... He testifies against them. Then there's some DNA. The DNA came up from this sweatshirt and the interior of the glove. There was actually some skin cells, like a tab of skin, that come back directly to Jeffrey Bly. There was also some plastic from Jeffrey Bly's eyeglasses in one of the gloves. It must have blown off when... You know, the shockwave goes off from the gun or whatever, but his eyeglasses get shipped, and I think they end up in one of the gloves. So there was DNA, there was his eyeglasses, there was these witnesses. There were some witnesses before during this trial. One woman where Bly was crossing a street in front of her, and she kind of turns as he's crossing the street. So for a good 10 seconds... This woman has lights, her driver's lights on, Bly, and looks right at him. He looks right back at her. And she wouldn't come forward until just before the trial because she stated that she felt like she didn't want to be a racist because she didn't see this guy doing anything. But she did, once she saw Jeffrey Bly on television, I think she called the detectives and told her a story. There were several other witnesses. This idiot just couldn't keep his mouth shut, you know, and he was famous for trying to intimidate witnesses. That's what got him into this trouble in the first place from that carjacking case. He was trying to intimidate that kid, Dana. Man, he's just a bad apple. And that Ricardo Gittins, who was the getaway driver, I don't know why he was never charged as an accessory. I mean, that's capital murder. He's going to commit homicide. I think they were trying to get Gittins to flip and something happened, but Ricardo Gittins was never charged in this case, and that's a big question mark in my mind. I'm confident that Bly, I mean, he left his DNA at the scene. He's that stupid. I didn't see any mention that they got any usable DNA from the cigarettes in the bushes, but he was sitting there waiting. He was lying in wait, and... Man, it was a horrible crime, and the weight of this, they were going to put Jeffrey Bly away forever, and obviously, any first-degree homicide in Massachusetts, it is life without parole. That's mandatory, but 
I was thinking they should have tried this guy federally because you could have the death penalty. They decided not to do that for whatever reason. So Jeffrey Bly was also, I believe, later indicted. You know, he never got out of the joint after that, after he got arrested because he couldn't make bail. Actually, there was no bail, first-degree homicide. But he was indicted for a 1993 homicide, Bly was, while he was in prison, also convicted of that. I mean, there's homicide all around this guy, and he's the poster child for the death penalty, quite frankly. You go up and shoot a prosecutor, an assistant attorney general in the head because you're a lifelong criminal? Who do you think you are? But he goes down, and he is now currently, guys, at the Sousa Baranowski facility. That is big boy prison. That is maximum security in Massachusetts. So he must not play well with others inside the joint. So he's doing some hard time, and that's good to hear. And his friend, Gittins, Ricardo Gittins, I believe he was also indicted at a certain point. He was involved, at least on the periphery of a couple homicides. And I think he was a native of Barbados. And after serving one of his many prison sentences, he was deported. But I'm not quite sure. I do know Jeffrey Bly still in the joint and never to get out, so that's good news. But man, was this a, a big case in Boston when it happened? It was earth-shattering because people were making comparisons with Columbia, Panama, and all those places, and the police did a good job investigating, and it, you know, Jeffrey Bly wasn't very difficult to sniff out on this. And he thought all those people, he was talking about this like he had went to the store and bought a gallon of milk, you know. He tells Sandra Brown what he did. He tells Eric Hardy what he did. And Anthony Houston testified against them. And then comes the DNA. It's open and shut, you know. But I think that's all I have on this one. It was a big case, and it was a big loss for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. I think that guy, McLaughlin, was doing good work, and it would continue, but it continued without him. All right, guys, I think that's all I have for you on this one. If you need to get a hold of me, my email is the best way, and that's barry at bostonconfidential.net. Other than that, I'll see you on the flip side, and I'll get on to the next one for you. Take care, guys. Mm -hmm.